The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They'll call you right back, 905-529-7165. And also check out their website at andyanddon.com. Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. And there you can access old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all in your little square. Yes, good morning, Scott. Good morning, Andy. Hello, squaries. <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, I'm noticing here we're at the end of the month, and that always means something in the financial world, but it certainly does especially so this month. Particularly in February. And yes, uh, it is not a leap year, so the deadline this year is March the 1st. So that is Monday to, cr- to make your RSP contribution, and that contribution would be for the 2020 tax, tax year, so that you still get to claim it on the 2020 tax return. And I will be, uh, later on in, in, the, in today's show, I will be talking a little bit about that. Funny, though, that's the only kind of tax planning that, one of the only few little tax planning things that you can do retroactively. You know, pretty much anything that's already happened in 2020 is done already. So yeah. RRSPs are your last sort of kick at the can. <laughs> so, Don, yeah. you want to talk about searching for financial stability and confidence, I guess, like in anything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, interesting, you know, with what we've gone through in the last year, they, that, that search for stability and confidence in all aspects of everybody's life has become, you know, forefront in everybody's mind. And financial planning is definitely one of those themes this year. In fact, 29% of Canadians have said they've engaged in the services of a financial planner and uh, they feel far more confident because of it. And that, that's good that they're feeling more confident, but at the end of the day, that's still only 29%, okay? That means 71% have not engaged in the services of a financial planner. And this is extremely important because, you know, in November 20, uh, November of last year, rather, there was a poll taken right across Canada, and they went from one side, right one end to the other, so they got a really good cross-country checkup. And 40% of people said, that the bank accounts that they have would not withstand an emergency, which, by the way, is a large increase from simply just two years before, when that number was 33%. Now, 33% was high already, so one-third of the people could not withstand a financial emergency back in 2018. But now that has now jumped to 40%. And those that have a planner, a financial planner, 75% of people with a financial planner say they could ride out the storm. Well, what a difference. And that's simply, and, and perhaps the, the 40% say they would not be able to withstand an, an emergency. Maybe they could. Maybe it's the fact that they haven't gone through the whole process to see if they are financially secure or not. Maybe it's just simply a feeling. And that's a, not a good way to run your financial household is based on feeling and emotion. It should really be based on a, a well-thought-out plan. And so it's kind of interesting. This 75% seems to be a common theme because 75% are confident that they would achieve their financial goals. Those are the ones working with a planner. And also 75% of those people working with a planner have a plan in place, have a written plan, financial plan in place. 
Now, that also begged me a question, though. Um, that still leaves 25% working with a financial planner that actually don't have a financial plan. So one in four uh, of those working with a financial planner, or in my, my opinion, perhaps a so-called financial planner, do not have a financial plan. I thought that was a little strange because isn't the idea of having a financial planner is to have a financial plan? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so looking at that, I thought, okay, well, I would suggest that isn't a financial planner per se. It, 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 you know, it's nice that you've gone through the data, but until you actually have a plan, um, you know, that it's, it's a conversation, in my opinion. It's not a financial plan. So, you know, clients that are, are really looking for a lot more, and, uh, and simply going to a, an institution, looking at whatever their investments is, are in and saying, okay, well, that seems pretty good. And, and this is what we talk about every, every week on our show is what financial planning is. It is estate planning. These are topics we're talking about so often with clients, depending on their stage of life. Uh, we're talking about their wills. We're talking about insurance. We're talking about can we you know, get over that hurdle of educating our kids through university? Um, can we afford a cottage? Um, how do we pay off our mortgage properly? What about this year's taxes? And, you know, the, for those receiving CERB, okay, uh, I know they didn't take any tax off that. How much tax am I going to pay? There's so many questions that come are, are, is, is coming up every year. So those working with a CFP, a certified financial planner, and we talk about this all the time. I know we probably kind of beat you down on this, but really, in my opinion, if you're not dealing with a CFP, you're not dealing with a financial planner. Straightforward. It is, we, we have a fiduciary duty of making sure we're putting our clients' needs first. We are not trying to say, okay, did, do you want a credit card with that, sir? Okay. <laughs> and that is not a financial planner so that they can get their numbers up so they can have enough credit card applications showing up at their bank. Or, oh, do you want a TFSA? With, your bank account seems a little high. You, you should get a TFSA. Well, that's just, to me, that's dangerous because anybody that's asking that question um, to you is, first of all, they're asking a question to get a check in the box. But really what happens is some, they should be asking, have you utilized all your TFSA room? That would be a good question because now you say, okay, well, maybe I haven't done my TFSA for a couple of years um, but those that say, okay, well, you've got 50000 in your bank. You can put that into your, in your bank account. You could put that into your TFSA. Well, that's not necessarily true. You need to know the room. And, again, this is, there's a lot of clients that are not getting those questions asked, and they're, they become victims because it's 1% per month penalty. And next thing you know, the bank is on the hook for these because they didn't ask the right questions. However, who really wants to go through that hassle of getting a letter from the CRA saying that you owe all this money because you over-contributed perhaps to an RSP, perhaps to a tax-free savings account, or whatever the case is. So the CFP, again, a fiduciary, by definition, really means you're always putting your client's needs first. And the only way, the only way you can really put your client's needs first is if you know the clients. You have to understand what makes them tick and make sure that you're, you're giving appropriate advice based on their situation. So in Ontario and Saskatchewan, by the way, they have introduced a title protection legislation to ensure that only those that are appropriately, appropriately qualified can call themselves financial planners. So 
Annie and I can call ourselves financial planners because we have a CFP. Now, if you're dealing with something that's called a consultant or an account representative or a vice president in some cases, <laughs> they not are, may not necessarily, I would suggest they do not have a CFP because if they had a CFP, they would likely call themselves a financial planner. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, uh, Andy, I probably you have this have happened many times. Clients will say, boy, I wish I met you 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. And we've been here for 20 years, so that we can even say that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, both of us are over 35 years, but who's counting, right? Yep. And you know what? I had a, a client of mine say this to me recently, and you know what? He came up with a great analogy. And he said, he said the best time to plant a walnut tree is 20 years ago. <laughs> the second best time to plant a walnut tree is today. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Good point. And that's very similar to dealing with a financial planner. If you've never dealt with one, don't, you know, you can't go backwards. You can't say, oh, geez, I wish I, I had a chance to speak with it 20 years ago. At least you're speaking to one now and you're, and you're solving issues and you're getting yourself on the right track. I would love to have that 20-year walnut tree in the backyard, but again, it's only going to get there if you plant it. And you know what? Time rips by. Next thing you know, it'll be five years and you are on the right track. So... Um, I thought that was just a great analogy for any kind of financial plan is don't beat yourself up because you haven't dealt with one. At least you are now. So finances in general are stressful, and they're even more stressful during a pandemic. So having this person that you can reach out and ask these pertinent questions and making sure you're doing the right thing. But here's how you prepare for that first meeting with a financial planner. First thing, is prepare a summary of all the life changes that have happened to you in the last year. For example, um, did you have a new child, a change of employment? Did you collect CERB? Were you unemployed? Did you buy a new house? Did you get a new grandchild? Just go through the list of um, you know, life changes for the past year because those are important for a financial planner. Number two, have a list of questions that you kind of already have in the top of your mind of what you'd like to ask a financial planner. Number three, and this is extremely important for Andy and I, have documentation. We want that, yeah, your tax return, your insurance policies, your wills, your notice of assessment is crucial, that year-end payslip, because right now you wouldn't have done your 2020 tax year. So have all the information you can bring along with you, including uh, an idea what your expenses are. And then lastly, have some idea what your short-term and long-term goals are. So during this annual checkup, the very first thing, you should probably plan once a year to have an annual checkup. And the reason why is things, life changes, things go on. So make it like an annual checkup, no different than, you know, I know a dentist is likely twice a year, but make this a once a year anyway, and perhaps more often. It's time to drop the, drop the financial pants. <laughs> you got to, yeah. <laughs> you got to expose all the financial wherewithal in your situation. And that is actually, it's kind of funny you say that, and it's not that much different than a doctor because people aren't generally telling their best friends about their finances. But when it comes to dealing with a financial planner, it, the best advice we're going to give you is only if we know your situation. Um, secondly, be prepared, as I just mentioned, with all the data. Thirdly, 
is action. And, you know, this is ex- extremely important. And right after the break, I'm going to just touch on why action is so important. Don and Andy, not only are they masked, they have rubber gloves, too. Uh, We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Don Fox, Andy Lister here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message, 905-529-7165, as well the website at andyanddon.com. Pandemic, lots of changes. We're going to talk about the home office and, uh, and some of the expenses that you can write off. But you want to finish off what you're talking about, Don? Yes, yeah, just to get ready for that annual checkup, as I mentioned. First of all, you just have to schedule it. Secondly, you prepare for it, as we talked about. But thirdly is action. And this is interesting because there's so many programs and so much good advice out there, but until it's actually put into action, it really doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And I had a recently, I, I, I had a chance to speak with a couple, and they had gone to three or four different institutions and comparing different advices, but they hadn't taken any advice over the past three years. And the cost of not engaging in the advice is extremely, was extremely expensive. So, yes, if you're going to go see a professional, of course, that's their job. Make sure they are a CFP, and you know what? Then you've got to put it in action. And, that's, and really, I find that dilemma is really a trust issue. So you have to make sure you trust the person you're going to deal with because they're, you're – they're hopefully going to be your financial planner for an awfully long time. As Andy and I, we just said earlier, we've both been in this business 35 years, and we do have clients that have been with us for over 30 years. So it's a, it's a long time, and you've got to make sure you're comfortable because you're going to continually see this person yearly for that annual checkup. And lastly, I, quote, I say action part two. Life does change quickly, and off the air, Andy and I were talking how we often will see clients multiple times in a year, because there's so many, sometimes there's a year where lots of stuff goes on, whether it's a retirement, a death, sickness, a grandchild, a new house, a downsizing, upsizing, what have you. There's lots of things. And then during those busy years, it's not like, oh, I have to wait for my yearly review. Oh, no, no. This is ongoing. You, you just send an email, make a phone call, and make sure that you update your plan as your life changes. And, and, don't, and it makes sense not to delay that. So... As a lot of changes happened in the last year, one of the things changed a lot is this year's tax return because of the pandemic and stay-at-home expenses. I know Andy's going to be touching on that. You know what? It's funny. I just uh, I received a package in the mail this week uh, of my paper tax return. And ah. uh, so the joke around the house has always been that I, I, I file a paper tax return instead of an electronic return because I only want to deal with those receipts once. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'll let... I'll let them deal with it at uh, CRA, but um, I think they're going to. I think at some point they're going to say to me, uh, "Listen, if you keep sending paper, we're going to double audit you. <laughs> there's going to be, be payback." <laughs> do you still have that old red and white health card, Andy? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I, 
<laughs> but uh, no, I th- there was also a report this week talking about how CRA is is going to be uh, Canada Revenue Agency is going to be inundated with phone calls and inquiries this year, and it's already staggering the number of calls and uh, inquiries they've had. I think the the statistics were typically around eighty thousand uh, contacts by this time of year, and they're already at like a million. Wow. So <clears throat> they've um, and they're talking about hiring an additional thousand employees at CRA to be able to handle the additional uh, flow of calls. And so, you're just putting more work on them by adding paper into the mix. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. I feel bad. Okay. Maybe well, I'll... I can I can attest to that, Andy, because I did try to reach them three separate times, three different days, and basically I got the automated. Everybody's busy now. Please call back again. And then they hung up. So yes. that's how busy they are right now. Um, yeah, it, it can be definitely frustrating trying to get information. I had the exact same experience. I waited for four hours on hold, and uh, and then I finally heard somebody click in, and then it disconnected. So I was oh. done. I had to start all over again. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't fun. But um, and a, a lot of the, a lot of the um, questions are going to come from people dealing with their home office expenses. So I just sort of wanted to outline what are the sort of ins and outs of what to consider when you're thinking about uh, being able to deduct some of your expenses from working from home. And I want to focus in just on one particular group, which is those people that are an employee. So you're, you're an employee, you're working for a company, and your company told you to go home last March and start working from home. And so typically, none of us in that category would be able to deduct any expenses as far as our regular you know, traveling back and forth to work or whatever expenses we have at home because our main place where we do our work was in an office or in a, in a location somewhere, whatever, wherever it was. It was not from our home. So CRA has, has actually they've done a pretty good job of putting a lot of information to make it available for you, for those that sort of want to dig through the ins and outs of this. And there's a special CRA reference document named the T4044, uh, which outlines employment expenses. It's only 40 pages long, but it goes into uh, goes into some of the details that we would uh, that you'd need to answer for different various scenarios. And um, so it covers commission employees, it covers regular employees, it covers um, uh, commission-based uh, self-employed people. It also covers people that might be shareholders that are working from home. So a lot of different scenarios. <clears throat> so. It basically comes down to two options with respect to filing your home office expense deduction. Option one, which is the, you call it the, the sort of no receipt, no, um, no documentation method, which is pretty straightforward, and it's a maximum of $400 that you can receive in terms of a deduction, but it has to be calculated based on the number of days that you work from home. So most people probably last March 16th, Monday, March 16th, was the day when almost universally everybody was told to work from home. Your employer might be a little bit different. So the first thing you have to do is start, what was the first day that you started working from home? And we'll assume that you worked right through to the end of the year. So if you started on March 16th uh, to December 31st, that was about 209 working days. And then in there, you would have to subtract your vacation that you may have taken or any holidays, fat holidays. So, you know, in general, people are somewhere around that, um, you know, it could be 200 days or a little bit less. If you had, you know, three weeks holidays, 
to be down to about 188 days. So let's say you, you did the simple option, you worked it out, you had 188 days that you were working from home uh, times $2 a day, two bucks a day, that's what they'll give you, uh, which is a total of $376. So that's option one. You don't have to provide uh, any receipts. You don't have to get your employer to fill out a T2200. Uh, you don't have to keep any of those records, but you do have to fill out the one single form, which is called the T777S. And um, if you're filing online or with a software uh, you, or paper, you'll be able to uh, re- get that form and access it. You simply fill in your days and the calculation would be finished and you include that on your tax return. So option two, which is a little more complicated, is the sort of detailed method, as it's called. Um, and in this case, you do have to get that T2200 or the T2200S, which is a special COVID one. That's one you can just fill out yourself. You don't need your employer to do that one. And uh, you do need to keep all your receipts and all your documents. And there's a test for this as well in, 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 in both cases, option one and option two, is that you had to work from home at least 50% of the time for four weeks. So it's pretty low threshold in terms of being able to qualify. So I'm not too worried about people in that front. Um, but, uh, and of course, you don't get any credit or deduction for any of your expenses that have been reimbursed by your employer as well. So there's a whole bunch of things that you can deduct when it comes to this detailed method. And so I just wanted to sort of quickly run through, people get an idea of what sort of items they need to start collecting in terms of the data for the detailed method. So if you're a salaried employee uh, and a commission employee, for that matter, but a salaried employee working from home, you can deduct a portion of your electricity, your heat, your water, uh, utilities, uh, home Internet access fees, some any uh, maintenance and minor repair costs, and any rent that you've paid for a house or an apartment where you live. Um, what you can't deduct, you cannot deduct, is mortgage interest any principal payments on the mortgage, your home internet connection fees, so just the connection fee, not the regular ongoing fee, uh, any furniture that you bought, any capital expenses, such as maybe did you replace a window or flooring in your in your space, uh, any wall decorations, things like that. So there's some there's sort of some little weird nuances that you have to be aware of, but um, the basics, as they say, uh, you know, it's important to make sure that you're keeping your receipts for all of these things as well. Now, you can deduct things such as um, uh, office supplies. And these aren't expensive, but I'm, I'm actually wearing these things called blue light glasses right now. Uh, unfortunately, they are not a tax deduction. <laughs> they're saving my eyes, but they're not a tax deduction. And I know a lot of people have been using those because they've been Zooming a lot. Um, but uh, some of the things, you know, everything from envelopes to uh, folders, file folders, highlighters, ink cartridges, uh, notebooks, paper clips, binder clips, pens, pencils, printing paper, uh, specialty paper, postage stamps, stationary items, sticky notes, toners, uh, uh, sort of fall into that category of things that you can, that are supplies that you can deduct. And to the extent that they haven't been reimbursed from your employer. So again, you want to sort of keep track of those receipts, make sure you're hanging on to them, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit as well too. So now your phone is another item 
um, if it's a cell phone or your, your home phone, you can definitely deduct your basic service plan. So whether it's, you know, the minutes, the data plan, et cetera, you can definitely deduct that. You can't deduct things like buying case for your phone. You can't deduct, uh, you know, connection fees for your phone. Uh, but you can deduct your long distance calls made for work. And, uh, and so that, that can be, a, um, that can be a big part of it, but basically the ongoing costs of the phone as well. And, um, the landline, it's the same thing, long distance calls for a landline, but you don't get to deduct any of that basic monthly home phone expense for a landline. So it works a little better if you've got a cell or mobile phone, I should say, in terms of the deductions. So, um, when we get into the next section, which is all about the workspace, and this is relative to where are you working from your home, who else is working from your home. In my situation, I was talking to my daughter over the weekend, and she and her spouse are both working from home, but they're both sharing the same workspace. And so even though they are paying rent, they don't get the benefit of, of how much rent they paid, they have to actually share the, the deduction that they're going to have because they're using a shared space. So this is where it gets a little more complicated in terms of how much you can deduct. So, you, so first step is you've calculated all these costs that you've had and the expenses. The next thing is to figure out what percentage or portion of them you can actually deduct. And so um, you, you, when it comes to the, the formula, you need to figure out your area workspace. So where are you working? How many square feet are there, or square meters, wherever you want to do it, based on the total finished area of your uh, of your home or apartment or condo? So total workspace, uh, so your area of your workspace divided by the total finished area. So that includes halls, hallways, bathrooms, your kitchen. So you got to take that whole space, the square footage of everything, uh, as a formula and the formula based on the and divided by the area that you're using specifically. And if it's, uh, you can definitely deduct then a percentage of your rent and ongoing maintenance, but you can never use these expenses to create a loss or increase a loss. In other words, if you haven't made enough money to cover off these expenses, you cannot create a loss as a result of your home office expenses. You can carry forward a loss uh, to a future year so that it can be offset future income, but you can't create a loss using the home office expense. So there's kind of two types of workspaces involved. You have a sort of what we call the common area or a designated room. So you either are working from home, you have your, say, your own office space, and it's dedicated specifically to what you're doing, and that one's pretty straightforward. So you can figure out the square footage based on the overall square footage of your, of your home or your, your apartment, and you'll know how much you can deduct as a percentage. Now, if it's a common area, let's say you're working from your kitchen table or your dining room table, then you have to do a calculation based on the number of hours worked from that space, okay? And so the second factor then is it just one employee or are there two employees working from home and are they also using that common space as well? So if it's simply one employee and you're in a designated room, let's say you've got one room you're working in out of five, you get a 20%, basically 20% deduction on those total of all your expenses. But if you're working from a common space, the dining room, and let's say it's 15% of the total space, then you would have to take the number of hours worked. So let's say you work 40 hours a week from that dining room table. Out of a total week, seven days a week, is 168 hours a week. As a percentage, is only 15% of 
uh, sorry, 15% is your dining room. It uh, works out to only 3.5% of your cost if you're using that common area, okay? So that's where a big, desert, big difference is going to come, and you have to determine, am I working from a designated room or am I working from a common area? So let's say there's two of you, like I was talking about in my, in my daughter's situation, and you're, if you're both working from designated rooms, you have separate offices, it's the same as a single individual person. But if you're working at the same dining room table together, that's called a shared common area. And again, you would basically then just have to split that cost again in half, assuming that you both work the same amount of time from there. So you can see it's starting to get a little more complicated, a little more complex. There's going to be a series of questions that you need to go through to determine this. And there are some CRA websites that sort of have a a flow chart as you answer each question, which gets you down to where you need to be in terms of the calculations. And the final thing I want to talk about is just keeping records. Now, you need to keep your records for at least six years. And although you can destroy your records after six years, it's still possible for them to come back. You can only, you can only destroy your records if you get an official release from CRA saying that they're satisfied and you do not need to keep those. But basically, you should be keeping, to the extent you can really go deep on this, daily record of your expenses, including all the receipts, canceled checks, any ticket stubs for travel, all your invoices, your monthly credit card statements, any receipts for purchases of merchandise or services. It should include the date, the name and address of the person that sold it to, your name and address, a full description of the goods and services that you bought. So I really think there's, this is a time where it makes so much sense to talk to a tax professional. They're going to be super busy. Get out there, get on this ASAP, because uh, even though the deadline is still April 30th, it's far enough away, uh, there's a lot to get done in terms of getting all this together and making sure that you get your fair share of a tax refund based on your home office expenses. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message, 905-529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about last-minute RSP contributions. We're getting down to the wire. We are definitely getting down to the wire. If uh, it is Saturday, so yes, you can, uh, some of the institutions you might have your RSP may be open. Uh, I know some of the financial planners are out there um, being able to pull funds out of people's bank accounts because that's uh, an option these days with the pandemic, and you don't actually need a check, so they can have a pull directly from your bank account directly into their RSPs. I guess um, my biggest thing is it happens, it's human nature to procrastinate, but we are, our backs are kind of against the wall, so you, the planning end of it, difficult to get some really good advice now so hopefully you know uh, a few of the questions should you contribute would be number one if the answer is no then hey you have nothing to worry about <laughs> you've got that all figured out if you should then how much and that's a really good question um if once you figure that out spousal rsp or in your own name well, that's a good point point. and then 
what kind of investment should you be looking at? So lots of, you know, basically it's like you're going down a rabbit hole. Yes, you make the decision you need this RSP, but then it ends up all these other questions come up. And that's, again, uh, I don't, you know, we talked about earlier in the program, uh, the, the essential use of a financial planner. So you're not just guessing. So first of all, should you contribute? Well, a lot has to do with your tax bracket and what your future income might hold. So if you're, say, making 48000 to 79000 a year, you're in a 30% tax bracket. But let's say you expect to be making 150000 in the next four years with raises. Well, you likely may want to be saving that RSP room for when you're in a higher tax bracket because if you're making one hundred and fifty, actually anywhere between 97000 to one you you're in a 43% tax bracket. So why take the tax tax bracket now at 30% in when you could wait a few years and save at 43%? So you'd actually be better off to add those add the, those extra funds to a tax-free savings account. And if that's all topped up, then even a non-registered account, um, potentially even pay down debt would even be a better idea. So again, these are the kind of questions you should go through. Now, if you are in a um, you're not going to have your income change too much. And let's say you were making 110000 every year. Well, maybe you may only want to put 13000 into an RSP to get rid of that 43% tax bracket. So tax bracket management is crucial to try to determine how much RSP should you put in. And then also, you have to think, when I do retire, what bracket am I going to be in at that time? So if I'm going to be in a basically between 48000 and 79000 when I retire, and you're, that means you're in a 30% bracket, and you're making 110000 now, well, yeah, definitely put in, put in that 13000 get rid of that 43% bracket. You'll be saving at 43%, and down the road you'll be paying tax when you pull it out at 30%. So extremely important. Now, as far as how much is your limit, it's, that's very dependent on, on your notice of, uh, of assessment. There's a formula. It's 18% of your income up to, I think it's 27230 this year. But, again, that's if you topped it up every year. So the real thing is go to your notice of assessment, whether you got one um, paper-based or if, if you went online. And if you go on your CRA website, you can find out exactly RSP room. This is a very important. What I found a few times this year, people have this what they call unused RSP room. I'm uh, sorry, unused contribution that they didn't claim and that line is like a red flag it means you actually put too much in the rsp and you weren't able to contribute that money or you didn't actually claim the money you put that in you could have claimed it and you didn't so it's important to talk to your financial planner about that particular line uh one question is what if you're working you're 72 years old can you still contribute to an rsp and the question there is, if you're married, the, you may actually be able to contrib- contribute because the year you turn 71 is the last year you can contribute to an RSP. However, if your spouse is under the age of 71, then you can contribute to a spousal RSP. And it might make sense. I had a situation this year where the person had a big bone, is still working, and he's 72. And he'll be making a good income, and this will be his last year of income. He's going to use the Paul's RSP room because his wife is 69 years old. So a great opportunity there. Again, this is, again, the nuances of RSPs. 
there's so many little details when you start opening it up. But as far as the investments, where should I put this money? The market's up, the market's down. I, I hear all these stocks, uh, the stay-at-home stocks did great. You know what? Don't make a snap decision. I would actually say, why don't you just park the money, just get the contribution in, get the, the tax receipt, and then you can determine next week or the week after without that feeling of being rushed, where should you invest that money? And then finally, I might, you might be a little short at this stage, and you're saying, well, does it make sense to borrow for the RSP? And it actually might. So these are the things you can actually borrow. If you have a line of credit or an equity line of credit, great. That's an uh, inexpensive form of financing. You may still have time, uh, probably unlikely, but uh, you might have time to get an RSP loan. But if you're in a high bracket, and let's say you're, you're making over 220000 a year, that's a 53% tax bracket. You're going to get half that money back in tax. So, and then of course, if you're in a lower bracket, it still may make sense. So speak to your financial planner if it, if it makes sense to borrow, because the borrowing costs are quite low right now. And you can borrow at under 4%, and yet the investments should likely, will likely, outperform 4%, depending where you put that. And you'll get the tax refund to pay down most of that loan, or at least part of the loan. And if you can pay, pay, it, off, pay it off by the, before the year's out, I would definitely recommend getting an RSP, again, given your tax brackets. So hope all that made sense, and there's a quick synopsis of should you get an RSP at the last minute. Planning your financial future, that's what we're doing. Don Fox and Andy Lister are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They will get back to you promptly. 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about sudden wealth. Would that be like a lottery win? Well, Scott, that's an excellent <laughs> example. So, lottery, can you think of another example? Um, well, not that's as positive as a lottery win, uh, because usually it's insurance, someone passes, a deceased, something of that nature. Yeah, it could be, I'm thinking, it's, it's you know, typically it's the lottery winner. Uh, it could be an inheritance. Yeah. It could be um, a death benefit from an insurance policy. Uh, or it could be an injury award, right? Uh, with a lawsuit, and those uh, so typically the lotteries, the injury awards, those can often be larger numbers, and um, and so can an inheritance. Well, right, right and, these days uh, the crypto millionaires are kind of going, uh, mm. depending on the day. Uh, as long as they sold, there's a lot of uh, people getting wealth that way these days. Good point, right? So suddenly you've got um, uh, uh, this lump sum of money, and in, and it's it, it's a bit unnerving i think for a lot of people because it may be out of their comfort zone in the sense they've never had to deal with this before but uh and i kind of think about it in two ways but if you're a pre-retiree so you haven't retired yet and you're sort of still in that accumulation phase you know you're, you're going to be thinking "Ooh, do i have enough money to to be able to do this like how much can i spend uh you might be worried about taxes uh, you might be thinking, what about, you know, my estate and leaving a legacy? Is that something that's possible as well? And 
you know, if you're a pre-retiree, one of the things I think about is really what sort of life stage are you in and what kind of lifestyle are you living as well? And so I thought about it. Let's say you're in your 30s and from a lifestyle perspective, you've been sort of living pretty nicely. You've been spending between, you know, you, if you're, you and your spouse are working, you're spending $10,000 a month. Okay. And if you wanted to do that for the rest of your life, and stop working. So you've received a lump sum of sudden wealth, and we want to factor in things like taxation, uh, inflation, and longevity. Let's say you live to age 95. You would need to have sudden wealth of 5.1 million to be able to sustain a $10,000 a month lifestyle with inflation and taxation until 95. So now you sort of get a picture of, well, geez, you need to have a fair amount. So if I just get a million dollars or $500,000, yeah, it's still sudden wealth, but it's not enough to quit your job. And you're still a pre-retiree and you're still going to have to keep working. Well, let's flash forward a little bit more. Let's say you're 45 years old now and you kind of want to live the exact same lifestyle, inflation, taxation to 95. Well, now you need still $4.3 million to be able to do that for the rest of your life, starting at age 45. And then let's roll that forward a little bit more and take you up to age 60. And now you have the sudden wealth arrive. How much do you need to be able to do that same lifestyle? Now you need about 3.4 million. So you can see it's still staggering in terms of the amount of money you're going to need. Uh, so depending on how much you've accumulated on your own, that sudden wealth might take you over the top, where now, yes, you can retire and live a lifestyle that feels like a sudden wealth lifestyle, uh, or you may need to keep working, or you may, may need to pare back your lifestyle. And when you get that lump sum, I think you need to sort of make some plans about what to do with it. The first thing is probably a reserve, and I think 10% is a good, good strategy for that. Put something aside that you can then figure out what might happen with that later on. You're going to have debts uh, and perhaps a mortgage that you want to get rid of. You're probably going to have gifts, so you're going to feel like you need to spread it around a little bit with some friends or relatives. What about vehicles and toys? Yeah, there's going to be that as well, right? Replacing a vehicle or getting a fancy car. Uh, what about a property, a vacation home? You know, that could be a million bucks easily, depending on your lifestyle and what, where you want it and what you want. And then obviously legacy and charity. And a good strategy, people say, 10% should go to charity just as a, as a sort of guideline. But, you know, right away, just sort of looking at some of those lump sums, those are going to dig into that sudden wealth that you've received as well. And what do you do with it when you first get it? Well, you should probably just park it, and it's probably going to be parked in Government of Canada Treasury bills, which aren't paying anything right now, but there are some alternatives for that. But with that amount of money, you're going to want to make sure that it's safe and it's accessible. And now you're going to spend the next six months developing a plan. So Don talked about talking to a CFP at the top of the show. Now is your point where you want to get in, in charge or get in touch with a CFP and start talking to them about creating your plan. And it's going to be looking at your cash flow. It's going to be analyzing your retirement. It's going to be putting together a tax plan to make sure you're minimizing tax along the way. It's going to be putting together an estate plan. And it might include maybe some insurance strategies, how to use that to to um, improve the uh, net worth and, and a tax-free estate as well. And finally, the investments. Where am I going to put this money and how am I going to invest it so that I can meet my ongoing needs right through retirement? 
And uh, so, as I say, sudden wealth is something that, uh, you know, I, I've had clients just this year already who have received inheritance, which they thought was the real tipping them over the top. And by the time we work through all of these different part, pieces of it, they realized, oh, you know what, this is really helping us, but it's not changing what we're going to be doing for the next several years. Wow, isn't that interesting? But that's certainly not the first time you guys have sent, uh, said that. It's always less than what you think it is, right? Exactly. Yep. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well as access old archive shows. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, good luck with your RSP decisions. <laughs> the preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.